Hey guys, I'm Paige Parker. I've been curious about successful people for as long as I can remember, and I adore sharing with you the stories and secrets of passion, purpose, and peace from today's thought leaders. Join as we pass the power on to you. Thank you for listening, and we're back for another exceptional episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. And today, I'm pleased to have joining us Mr. Edwin Tong, Singapore's Minister for Culture, Community, and Youth, and Second Minister for Law. In this role, he chairs the National Integration Council, the Singapore CARES Steering Committee, the National Youth Council, the National Steering Committee on Racial and Religious Harmony, as well as the Chinese Community Liaison Group. Minister, with all of that on your plate, I am grateful you've made the time to be with us today to share what fuels your passion and purpose. Thank you, Paige. It's a pleasure to be here and a real honor for me to be invited by you. Thank you. It's our pleasure and our honor. But I want to share with the listeners from the very beginning, your team contacted me recently to reschedule our podcast recording, and they told me it was due to an urgent matter. And I thought, hmm, urgent. Hmm. And it turned out to be the announcement of Lawrence Wong as the 4G pick to become prime minister. And I thought that indeed was urgent. <laughs> well, as I told you, Paige, I wouldn't miss this for any other more slight reason than that. Yeah, so it was one of those days when we had a little bit of a more important meeting than most days. I know that your time is really not your own very, very often. And when you have a politician or somebody who runs a company, I mean, you know that there is a potential that there is going to be something. But I do agree that that was urgent. One more question on this. During the entire process of interviewing and making the choice on who would lead Singapore, did you kind of want to pinch yourself and say, I can't believe that I'm a part of this whole thing? Oh, yeah, all the time. I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more, but I came into politics uh, more than 10 years ago now. But I've only been in the cabinet for the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm still a relative newbie as mm -hmm. far as that is concerned. And so, yeah, I still pinch myself because if you speak to any one of my friends from school days, they'll tell you that I'm probably amongst the lowest in the list of people most likely to be in the government at this point in time. So yeah, I do pinch myself and, and I wonder whether or not all of this is going to go away when I wake up. Wow, that sounds a little bit like imposter syndrome. Yeah, a little bit so, yeah. <laughs> so all those friends, they would never think that you would go into politics. Oh, no, Why? no, yeah. Why? Because, well, you know, you won't believe me if I tell you that, but you know, I, I used to be a big fan of the magic trick shop. I used to buy my sting bombs from there. I used to put itchy powder down someone's shorts. <laughs> but those are days in school, you know. And uh, that's how we were. And I think that's how my friends today, whom I knew from way back then, decades ago, see me even now. So I think if you ask them, they'll give you lots of stories. But I bet they're so proud of you. But I do want to backtrack to when you decided to become an MP in 2011. And I wonder, because I know that your family's incredibly important to you. And did you sit them down and have a family chat uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I think this is not something that could be done without family support. So, well, first of all, if you backtrack a little, when I was first asked to consider, I mean, even then, you know, it was a major family decision as to whether I would embark on that path. Was it out of the blue? It was out of the blue, yeah. I was not your typical, you know, volunteer from the time I was in school. So it was out of the blue. I was very settled in my legal practice. And I was asked to consider, and so I did. And uh, But I did so only after I consulted with my family, parents, my wife, my kids who are then still young, but I still asked them. Because I know that it's not just my commitment, it's also a family's commitment to ensure that I can take time away from family to do the work that I do. Well, also, you said you were a settled lawyer, but you were also a very successful lawyer. So what was it that made you want to leave that and to serve? Well, I was persuaded that I could put in a contribution and I felt that if there was an opportunity to do so and provided I had the family support, then 
I should stand up and be counted. That's something I think that's been a recurring comment on the podcast from so many thought leaders. Is I mean, even if it's a small contribution, we all need to do what we can do. I think that's absolutely vital. And if you look at our country's success over the years, I think that's been crucial. You know, I never regard myself as being the best person to do it, this job. But I regard myself as prepared to do it, and as a result, you know, put in this position. But I think if we all have that ethos and contribute in whatever way in which we can do, we can add value, then I think the world will be a better place. But how do we encourage that? Because I know from so many young people that I talk to that there is this mindset that I can't do enough, I can't give enough, and so it's pointless, it's worthless. So how do we instill that sense of every small little bit? Well, you know the story of the starfish, the boy and the starfish? Tell me. There's a boy who once went on the beach and he saw lots of starfish washed ashore. And he started to take each one and he flung it back to the ocean. And an old man came and asked him, I said, you know, boy, what are you doing this for? Because, you know, you can't save all the starfish on the beach. They're all going to die. He said, yeah, I can't save everyone. But for the one I could take and throw back into the ocean, it makes a hell of a difference for him. To me, that's the answer. Well, do you think that public service should be required in our children's education? <laughs> no, not public service per se, but I think certainly an appreciation of what the public service does. Uh, the trade-offs that we make each day, you know, trying to work through public policy, the challenges that we face as a small country, country that is geopolitically sensitive position, country that is in a good position trade-wise, but always navigating the differences between our neighbours, large countries, and being in a very unique, multicultural, multiracial population that is at once special but also fragile. So I, I hope that young people see more of that. So it's not necessarily public service, but I think really an awareness and appreciation of our challenges. Maybe volunteerism would have been a better word than, Perhaps, than public yeah. service. And I do think that MOE is trying to do more and more of that. Yeah, I think it's got to be both organized as well as disorganized, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's got to be organized because, you know, school kids will need to know where to approach, you know, who to approach, where to do the volunteer work. But I think it's also got to be organic. It's mm -hmm. got to be ground up. Mm -hmm. You've got to want to do something. And I think young people today have lots of causes they champion. And if you can marshal that energy and you know, allow them to do as they like without having to have CCA or VIA points and so on, I think that'll be very useful because it engenders a strong sense of public spiritedness. Is the Youth Action Challenge something that would encourage this sort of volunteerism? Yeah, I think so because the Youth Action Challenge is meant to be a free form, a little bit messy and with a little bit more focus on ground-up initiatives. So it's, it's really what I had in mind when I said make it a bit disorganized as well. So provide a form, but really the ideas, who to benefit, how to do go about volunteering, and the kind of projects that you want to champion and put forward. I think let young people decide for themselves. And if they decide for themselves, they are invested in a cause, they support beneficiaries or groups of beneficiaries they believe in, it'll be a lot more sustainable. So we believe in that. I think youth action really is key motivator behind what we set up. Well, you have three daughters, and I assume you were delighted with the recent Singapore White Paper on Women's Development. It commits to ensuring further progress for women. And I wonder, as the father of daughters, has gender equality been a topic over dinner with your family, or is it something that you see as you need to walk the talk and lead by example more than talk about it? Well, with three daughters, my wife, occasionally my mother and sometimes my mother-in-law in the house, there's no gender equality in the home. I'm completely <laughs> outnumbered. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but I, I think it's important. I, I think it's important in as much as we have put up a paper and I think those are all very important issues to be debated. I think the key to gender equality is in the attitudes of men. Agreed. And, and right across, you know, the spectrum, whether at the workplace, at home, 
in a domestic situation, in a professional setting, you speak about glass ceilings and so on, we've got to you know, disabuse young girls in particular of those myths. And if we can succeed in doing that, I think the men play a big part in, in that success. So it's a mindset, it's a shift in the way in which we look at things. But I've tried as far as I can at home with my three girls to not have that kind of biasness. It sometimes takes my wife and I a little bit more of a conscious effort to do it. But you know, we let our girls do as they like, as their interest takes them. And we try and facilitate and we try and make sure that they don't grow up in the thinking that they are inferior somehow to the boys. And so I think it's a lot to do with the mindset and the attitudes. Right. For your daughters, and I have a daughter who's almost 19 and 14, they are just growing up in a way that I think they are going to find partners. Because in the old days, you know, women thought that someone should take care of them, perhaps. And women just, it was a very different mindset shift. And now when girls and boys go out, girls ask boys out, girls pay for half, you know, they're going Dutch. I mean, it's not as though they feel anyone needs to take care of them because they know they're completely competent to do what they want and how they want. And I think it will lead to some pretty extraordinary partnerships going forward, I hope. I know as a lawyer that you handle dispute resolution, restructuring, and insolvency, which sounds super, super heavy. And I wonder if your law career work was more demanding than your work as a minister now. Well, yes and no. I think at its peak, you know, in the middle of a heavy trial, when you're under pressure by the judge, you know, opposing counsel is at you, you know, your client is upset, you know, because things are not going well. I think there's a lot of pressure on lawyers. But at the same time, I think I see the role now as very different. We are answerable to a whole range of different constituents and the different stakeholders. And I mean, the point I made earlier about having trade-offs in public service, that's a reality. And there's not one policy that will be a magic silver bullet. You know, there's always going to be trade-offs. We're going to have to prefer someone over another, you know, when you deal with policy. Our role, I think, is in constantly every day trying to make that, that judgment as to where that trade-off, that threshold would lie. And it's never an easy decision. And you have, you know, it's a heavy responsibility, one that should be made with as much knowledge as possible, as much ground knowledge as possible. So yes, the job is demanding, but I think it's made easier also for me personally in my current role because I quite enjoy, you know, the different stakeholder groups that I see, you know, in sports, in arts, in culture. In some ways, I'm lucky because work sort of morphs into hobby as well because I enjoy being an armchair sports fan. I enjoy sports. I enjoy seeing our sportsmen do well, even in sports that I, I don't play myself. I enjoy watching our talent exhibited on stage, you know, and showcasing our, ourselves to the rest of the world that Singapore can do this. So I enjoy a lot of it. And so to that extent, I'm lucky. I, I don't see it really as work so much. Don't go yet. Pass the Power with Paige Parker. We'll be right back after a short break. It sounds like, I mean, you, you love what you're doing, so... I do enjoy it. I mean, it's still a lot of work. It's still a lot of stakeholders to see and to balance, but I fundamentally enjoy the work that I do. And I know you're a big football fan. <laughs> Less so now, because the team I support has given me every reason <laughs> to switch off on football. And which team is that? It's Manchester United. Oh, yeah. You heard, the, you heard of that? Of um, course. They're yeah, horrible yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. But I know that you've also learned far more about theatre and the arts in your current position. And I was incredibly happy to see you at the ballet for Singapore Ballet's performance recently. And you were there with one of your daughters. And I wonder, has the exposure to the arts shaped your mindset in a different way than before your exposure to the arts? 
Yes. Well, in some ways, you know, understanding the nuances, the subtlety, uh, the way in which there can be subtext conveyed so, so artistically has given me a different dimension to the work that I do. But also fundamentally appreciating the arts and knowing that Singapore has that talent. And I feel a responsibility to make sure that that talent is exposed, is showcased and is exported as well. And I also feel a pressure to make sure that we establish a unique Singaporean identity for the arts that we do that can resonate with the public and that it can be really used, especially in these times with COVID, to inspire and to engender confidence. And I think we've done a lot of that. So it has shaped the way in which myself, my colleagues at my ministry have looked at things and how we can move forward. I moved here 15 years ago and Singapore Ballet, when I moved here, was a very good company. But now they're so much better. And now there is a principal ballerina who is a Singaporean woman, Kwok Menyi, who every company in the world would want to have her. She is just really a special dancer. And she's right here on our stage as a dancer for Singapore Ballet. And so when people talk about, sometimes I think they make excuses for the talent here. And I would say that we have some pretty extraordinary talent We do, right here. we do. I mean, I felt some goosebumps as you were saying that because I think that's absolutely true, not just on the, on the ballet stage, but, you know, equally on the visual arts scene for our theatre as well, theatre practitioners, our music musicians and singers. I think they're all fantastic talent. And I think we have to appreciate that a bit more so that they'll be encouraged and they'll feel that there is a path there's a path for them it's not just a hobby it's not just something that I do in my spare time but it's a real career option for many of our artists and our arts practitioners one of the reasons that I have tried to promote the arts so much when I was writing for the Straits Times I did a column on this and I talk about it as much as I can is that Singaporeans tend to see the arts as a luxury and science proves that's not true I mean, you can see that it increases abilities in so many ways with exposure to the arts. And how do we get past that mindset here? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't know about the science that proves it, but I know that in every instinct that we feel about the arts, especially in the context of COVID-19 and the circuit breaker and the difficulties we've had to socialize, having the arts as not just as a fallback, but as a way to shine that light forward, how do we move forward as a society? How do we build a certain common identity that allows us to share our heritage and be proud of our artists? I think all of that has got a great intangible value. So I don't see this as secondary to the sciences. I don't see this as something you do in only as your free time or if you have the luxury of time. But I really see arts and culture and heritage as the way forward, especially for our country. At a somewhat of an inflection point now where we're moving into a new leadership, where we're transitioning, the world is changing so quickly. There are so many uh, you know, fault lines that you know, the rest of the world experience you know, deepening uh, division on. I think a country united by our shared heritage, our common identity, our sense of purpose behind the arts, our sense of pride in the artists that we showcase, I think really that's going to be the new social glue that can really give us a strong compact moving forward. That's how I feel when I walk through ACM, the Asian Civilizations Museum, because it's so extraordinary. I mean, the history and the culture here. And when you walk through that magnificent, ginormous place, I mean, you just, you know that there's so much that has happened here and it's there's so much to be proud of. Yes, I mean, ACM is one of my favorite museums. I'm a Catholic myself, but I particularly enjoy the Buddhist exhibits I, th I think it's fascinating and I think it tells us how Singapore was once really at the crossroads of trade uh, culture and religion and I think we can continue to be so uh, we should not be shy about it it's something that we have throughout history we've been used to doing what are your number one goals for one community two culture and three youth well on community obviously it is to make sure that 
in a world that's looking increasingly introspective, individualistic in outlook, that we can foster a community that still values, in, in, in your words actually, in an article that you wrote some years ago when you first came back at the end of 2020, more of the we and less of the me. I think that's critical in any community. In youths, I think it's important for us to always live on the edge of aspiration, for us to always look forward, for our young people to feel that they can be, they can aspire to be something special. If we continue to do that here and not lose that youthful enthusiasm, I think we will have done our youths a lot. Because right around the world, I think people are concerned about jobs, about whether they can get an education, what can they do. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in Singapore and I, th I think we should harness that. Well, culture is tied closely to community because it's, I think it's a big part of the identity that we have. And it's the one thing that I think can unite us as Singaporeans. You know, we all, as you know, in Singapore, multicultural, multiracial, we're all bound by being Singaporean. But behind that identity is something unique. Even amongst the majority race in Chinese, we have different dialect groups. And within the different dialect groups, you have different religious practices as well. So all of these really is special and in some ways allows us to distinguish ourselves beyond just being Singaporean. Different, but all the same, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you've learned from the youth, kind of the most important lesson? Well, I hosted a youth leadership inauguration for the People's Association a couple of weeks back. And um, one young person, you know, when I asked that same question of young people, you know, what are your, what's the one takeaway from youth leadership? And this person told me, never assume that a young person can't do as well as someone who has the experience. Because what we don't have in experience, we make up for in exuberance. And I think that's very true. Uh, and I think if we give young people the platform, a blank canvas, be inventive, sky's the limit, I think they'll surprise us more often than not. So I think be prepared to give them the opportunity, give them that blank canvas, and be prepared to take on and work with them as equals. That's so interesting. I have a, a good friend who works at Apple, and she says that the best teams are those that have kind of that youth, that creative mindset, and they just are thinking about these crazy things. But then you have people, you know, kind of more my age who are, I'm 53, who, you know, maybe have a little bit of wisdom to take that and nuance it. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I tell the young people today, I mean, when I look back at when I was their age at 17, 18, I mean, they're doing so much more than I used to do. They are so much more well-read, they are so much more knowledgeable, they are so much more invested in today's politics and social issues than I ever was. So it's a good sign and I think it's important for us as not young but also not old people of this society today to marshal this, to harness this and to encourage them and give them a platform. And I think it's important that we do that because it keeps them rooted and invested. And I think the combination of youthful exuberance, enthusiasm with a little bit of a grey hat experience will make for a superb combination. And I think that's what we need to do. Well, I think I like most that they are far more willing to take risk and not play it so safe. And I always tell young people, you know, it's better to fail early. I mean, try yeah, what, what you have to lose. I mean, once you have a mortgage and you have children and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it becomes so much yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But I, I also constantly tell them that young people today have an opportunity to take these risks because their forefathers have worked hard to give them that stability and their environment not just family, but also geopolitically, our social political system here has been stable. It allows them to take that risk. If you had not been given this platform, and if you were, say, go back to, you know, our Singapore in the 80s, 70s, 
you had to make it work. You know, you had to put food on the table. So you could not take the risk that young people today do. So I think in many ways, after a few generations, we're lucky, we're fortunate. But I constantly remind our young people that we do need to keep this in mind, that they are able to have these opportunities and, and really experiment for themselves and have that safety net when they fail because of what their parents and the previous generations have done. That's such a good point because they have the great education system. There's the solid infrastructure system. I mean, it's one of the places that everybody in the world wants to work in Singapore and all of that is because of what's happened that's with right. the previous generation. Yeah, right. So it's a very good point. Stay tuned for more inspiring human stories after this short break. Do you think there will be a time when the arts and sports are valued as much as academia? Well, I think we should get there. We're not there yet, but I think we're on the path and our journey has started. I think we're kind of at the very beginning. Yeah, I think a lot more could be done in the sense that when you start looking at career options, it doesn't feature uppermost on the list of options, right? So I think we could do better to figure in that. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you look at how far we have come over the past 20, 30 years, I think it has made a difference. I mean, to give you an example, sports school never existed until it was set up. And now you do have a serious option in sports. We have a lot more professional sportsmen today than we ever did when I was growing up. We have SOTA, right, for the arts. And now we're going to have an arts university soon as well. And allied with the arts university, you must have an arts economy that is able to absorb the graduates in the arts university. So I think we're going on that path. Could we be further ahead of it, I think we could. But I think it's a very strong, not overnight success, but a sustained momentum that I think has kept this going. So I believe that it will find its level playing field soon, but we have some way to go. How far off is the Arts University? Oh, it's been announced. I forget the exact date of implementation, but it's been announced, I think, last year. And I think we will get on track in a couple of years' time with a view to having its first graduates in four or five years' time. That's excellent news. So for any of our listeners who want to follow their dreams, but they're facing external pressure to do what makes sense, how would you encourage them? Well, I think external pressures usually come in the form of family, parents, and so on. I mean, and their views are often in the best interest of the individual. I think, you know, with the benefit of wisdom, I think the family always wants the best for you. So never discount it, never ignore it. But at the same time, I think we are at the stage of development in our country where young person should be bold enough to follow that aspiration, that dream. If you want to be an artist, try it. You know, you never know until you've tried it. You might fail. You might find that it's not for you ultimately. But I think we have enough of capital to give it a shot. So I would say to a young person, follow your path. What you think or you might think is your path when you're young might not really be your, you know, what you might like. But nonetheless, give it a go. And as you said, you know, uh, have that risk appetite that we never saw before. Right. But also we have to know that life is not linear and yeah. that we may have a sense of what our path is and then we go down that road and we need to pivot or that leads to another path. Yeah. And that's the case for almost everything we do in every station of life and in every profession as well. Right. I do think that there are young people who have gone on to become accountants or lawyers or doctors because there was great pressure from home and Many of them, after they get the degree, will go on and then follow the path that they want. I'm thinking about Janice Wong, who has the best chocolates in Singapore, and she kind of led the path that her parents wanted. And then after she did that, she went to France to learn how to bake. And I just hope we can get to a place where children can follow their intention 
and not have to check off a box for mom and dad. Look, I hope so too. If you are sure and you know that this is the case, please, by all means, do it. You know, it's important that you like what you do. Mm. You know, I, I tell young lawyers, I used to tell young lawyers when I was still in a private practice and most uh, young people today, you spend the majority of your waking hours doing your work, whether it's in the office or in a particular profession, on your feet, you know, baking, whatever it is. You must enjoy it. You must like it. If every day is a dredge, you know, you get up and you don't want to get up, get to work, then something is wrong. So you've got to, first of all, like what you do before you start thinking about career options, you know, how much does it pay you and so on. Let's look at your purpose. And one of the things that I've thought a lot about, and I wonder, I'm sure it's in your paradigm, is the whole COVID generation or generation COVID, they're called, and the youths who are coming of age during the pandemic. Are you worried or you think this too shall pass and we'll be okay? No, I am very worried. I think one of the hidden costs, and I think we have not yet fully discovered the extent to which it is a cost to us yet, is precisely what you just said, Paige. Because, you see, if you are a business and you've been shut down or you, you have limited operation because of COVID, it's always a financial solution. You can find some remedy, you know, just give a grant. Not the most ideal, but yes, you can solve it. But if you're a young person today and you spend two or three years away from team sports, for example, you've not spent the last two or three years attending Sunday school, for instance, or not worked on a CCA project in a group, I think these are opportunities that will pass you by and it's not going to be easy, if at all, to get it back. A young teenager who has not been part of a rugby, hockey, football team now will not suddenly overnight, when he or she is 16, 17, 18, find themselves in a team sport. Mm. So I think we are going to count the cost of this and we haven't fully seen it yet. So I'm worried, which is why my ministry, working with the rest of my colleagues, we have been at the forefront of pushing forward, trying to open up national school games, for example, which, which we have done, trying to bring people back into the parks, into our sporting arenas, trying to promote attendance at performances, you know, at the, at the auditoriums, at the theatres, to try to bring back some form of normalcy in everyday social life, because I think that's important. We spend too much away from each other, too much distance away from normal social team activities, I think we might find that those are muscles that we can't get back so easily. We've also had athletes and artists start to speak out more on mental health. And I wonder if there are any long-term plans for the government to support their mental well-being? Well, I think first of all, you know, it's a, not an issue just for the athletes. I think it's a big issue now today, especially amongst young people. I think it's driven in large part, in my view, by social media, the advent of social media, the internet, where there's so much going on and there's so much more information, so much more comparison. You know, then you put up a post and you, know, you put up another post and you, know, you want to be better than the next person and so on. So I think all of that adds to the stress. And on top of that, you have the stresses of school. Competition at school is not getting any easier. So I think it's something we must pay a lot of attention to. We must encourage people to come forward and not bottle it up because that's the worst that you can do. And we must also encourage a nurturing and encouraging environment. Let me look, who are the best first responders to someone who's suffering from emotional stress? It's your desk mate in school or the guy who shares your lunch at the canteen at the tuck shop or co-worker. I think we must all encourage that philosophy of and the ethos of openness and that it's okay not to feel alright and to feel burnt out, to feel the stress of the situation and to want to seek help and treatment. I think that's fairly normal. We see the doctor when we're down with a you know, cold and, and the flu, but why don't we see someone when we need some relief from mental stress? I think we have to do a better job as parents accepting you know, if our child does need or does come to us, that we should be accepting. But there's been such a social stigma, which goes along with, you know, seeing somebody for your mental health. 
And parents, many of us, are about face. And, you know, we don't want our child to do something like that. When you think about these children, it's actually the parents who probably need a mindset shift, right? So that they can be accepting of what's going on with their children. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we all have to check ourselves. I mean, as parents, we sometimes have to check ourselves and ask, you know, what's right for the child? It's a fine balance page. I mean, I'm sure you have experienced it yourself, you know, between making sure that they fulfill what they need to do to the best of their ability and making sure that at the same time, they enjoy their childhood, they enjoy growing up and that the experience is rich and full and not just because, you know, they're put onto this treadmill and they have to keep moving just to stay, you know, in tandem. Well, my daughter's at Nanyang Girls High in secondary too, and she so, studies. So you know all about she, that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> she studies quite a bit, I assure you. At 11.30 when I go to bed, I encourage her also to go to bed. So these days, artists and athletes are role models. And do you think they should talk about social and political issues on a larger scale and larger stage and on social media? Well, yes, I think with the right ingredients, I think they can make a difference. But what's important is, as I said, with the right ingredients, I think first of all, you know, you want to speak, you champion an issue, then make sure you know enough about it. You know, the worst that we can do is, you know, leverage on the fame and popularity and the following that someone might have as a personality and be very superficial about a topic that's important. Then I think it's going to be misleading. But if you have enough passion and cause, you know, behind a cause, then by all means, I mean, you know, Yiping Siu, our well-regarded, well-known Paralympian, I mean, she has stood for issues that has been consistent and she's well-read. She knows the issues inside out. She knows the countervailing arguments as well. And she makes a good case. And I think when you do that, you know, it's sustainable and people will respect those views. And eventually you can shape cultural norms and societal behavior. Well, we'd love to have her as a guest on the podcast, by the way. Uh, should I ask her? <laughs> <laughs> if you can help in any way. <laughs> she's fabulous. Yeah, she's fabulous. I mean, yeah. she's still young, but she has got a really matured head on her shoulders. And I think she, her vision is well beyond her years. We'll hear more from our guest after the break. I listed all of the things that you're involved with from the National Steering Committee on Race and Religious Harmony, the Chinese Community Liaison. We have Religious Harmony Day here in Singapore, and we ensure a diverse mix of cultures and people in our HTB estates. But I wonder if there's more we can do to build more compassion and empathy. How can we integrate better? Because as you said, the world is becoming more divided. And I just wonder what more can we do? What more can the listeners do? You know, we can spend a lot of time discussing this. But to me, the one key thing that we should shift a lot more is integration and lived experiences. We are divided because sometimes our social structures artificially make us divided you know, by religion or by race or by social economic status and so on. I think the key to what unites us better is better integration. A little bit of a messy integration, if you know what I mean, without you know, it being organized. If I have a friend who is, you know, of a different race, different sexual orientation even, or different religion, I'm more likely to be understanding and know and be more considerate than I would be about someone who I don't know personally. So with these lived experiences, these natural integration points, I think we can better find that harmony, that balance. And we should do this through non-deliberate means, meaning don't set up an event because you want to call it a local foreigner integration event. It becomes very artificial. But do something that allows people to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, trying to foster you know, better harmony. I'll give an example. I was once at an event at a mosque and uh, they had invited young kids from church down the road to work together to pack 
food, biryani to benefit, I think there were certain low-income families. And so I saw, when I went there, and I saw that there was a human chain, you know, pre-COVID days. One would pack, one would put the sauce in, one would put the, the utensils in, and so on. There was a conveyor belt. Assembly line. Assembly line. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they work side by side, you know. And when I asked a few young people, you know, what they do, they say, oh, you know, after this, what are you going to do after this? Say, oh, I, I made a new friend and we're going to go out for a coffee later. And it heartened me because, you know, these are occasions which, where they come together, but because they know each other. And, and, you know, our young people are not born with prejudices. Absolutely. They know, of course, seeing another friend who's from a different religion, but they don't have those prejudices. So the more they come together, the more they can see each other in very natural settings, daily lived experiences and daily lived occasions, the better it will be. And I think these are little things that we can do consciously to help to foster better harmony. It's not how we're born to think that we are better or different and all that. It's a societal and a stereotypes just come in and we learn it as we get older. We start to judge. The more we can break down those walls, especially when the kids are not yet influenced at a younger age, I think the better it'll be. I I remember when I was in school, I never came home telling my mom, hey, hey, you know, I, I made a new Malay friend or a new Indian friend. It was not about that. To me, when I was in school, and bear in mind what I told you about my school days, <laughs> it was about the guy who taught me how to catch the spiders, you know, amongst the vegetation, or the guy who brought the ball to school. I mean, the guy who brought the ball to school was king, <laughs> right? And it doesn't matter whether he's Malay, Chinese, Indian, Eurasian, he was the friend that you had to, had the ball. to, to know, yeah, because you wanted to be on his team, <laughs> right? Uh, and to be invited to the match. So I think these are things which help us to look beyond color, creed, and racial segregation. So as we come kind of to the last theme of the podcast, it's peace. And I wonder, are there strengths that you think make a person successful? And are there habits that can steer a person to success? It's a tough question, Paige. To me, I believe it's very much to each his own. But I think if you are put in the right environment, you're motivated, self-motivated, you believe in what you do, you like what you do, and you have a purpose that you keep your eye on then I think you're more driven to success. So I think it's not so much individual traits per se, but also being the right shoe on the right foot. And when you have that, I think success typically tends to follow naturally. A little persistence? Well, of course, you know, it won't hurt. You know, determination, resilience, knowing how to pick yourself up, knowing how to come back after loss, you know, and and be resilient, how to win with grace. All of these are very important life lessons. But I think fundamentally, if you're in the right position, choosing a situation for yourselves, whether it's a volunteer project or a job that you enjoy, that you have purpose and passion behind, I think that's half the battle won. Well, for our listeners out there, could you talk about a time that you had to pick yourself up after a failure? Because I think so often we think of these important people who come on the podcast and they've just kind of gone from, you know, one great event in their life to the next great event. And most of the people here have said they face failures along the way. And how do you pick yourself up? Well, it's tough. I mean, I I never did well in school. You heard what I, I did. You know, I was playful. I skipped all my Chinese lessons, which I regret today. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was tough for me because there came a point in time where I wasn't sure that I would get out of secondary school. My, if you looked at my secondary school report card, it was a lot of red lines and red numbers. And I was lucky because I had a mentor. He was a physics tutor, I remember. And uh, he was a mentor for me in the sense that he was very close in age to me just a little bit older and uh, somehow, you know, the penny dropped. So I think sometimes you also have to be lucky beyond Mm. having all these different lofty skill sets. And I was lucky. I was very fortunate to have that. And my parents were very much, my mother was a career teacher, spent her whole life teaching. So she had a perspective. But despite her own belief in, you know, 
working hard and teaching and so on, she gave me a lot of room, which helped me to find myself. And as I said, if you are doing something well because you believe in it, it's a lot more sustainable than if you're forced to do something because you're told to do it. So I felt that, you know, along the way I had several guardian angels and that helped me a lot personally. And when you were practicing law and you faced defeat, you just would, yeah, mindset you know, is... <laughs> well, first of all, you grumble that, you know, ah, the judge doesn't understand my case, <laughs> as with all lawyers, you know. But, you know, in, in legal practice, you know, you go to court, you know, it's a binary thing, right? It's you, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. So you just have to tell yourself that don't take it too personally, put your best case forward and... Uh, Hopefully, you know, you're able to persuade the judge. It's about making sure that you put everything into your case and you come out of your case win-lose or otherwise satisfied that you've done your best. I no think regrets. that's important, no regrets. It's what I tell my own kids as well. I mean, my youngest one is a keen tennis player. And you know, in, in tennis, you know, it's the player against the player. And often it's the player against himself or herself too. It's very mental. And so I tell her, look, you know, once the match starts, no one can help you. You're on your own. It's you against your opponent, you against yourself. So leave the court with nothing to regret. Put everything in the court and then walk out. Win or lose. And she does that? Most times. <laughs> Back to MCCY, is there a guiding principle that guides you? And is there one thing you'd like to leave behind that you've done? Our ministry, MCCY, myself, my colleagues, we all see this as the one ministry that is perhaps the most in touch with day-to-day -day people, day-to-day -day groups, organizations. You know, Our touch points are many from religion to youth, art, sports, culture, heritage, you know, you name it. So we see a lot of people and I see ourselves as a ministry that has to support the aspirations of so many different stakeholders, so many different groups. And in some ways, we are a lot more of a partner with our people in that sense, with our stakeholders, than perhaps some other ministries which are more regulatory and a lot more policy in nature. Yes, we are also involved in that in policy and regulation, but we'd like to leave behind an ethos of partnership people, working with the government to really realize aspirations and to make Singapore and Singaporeans realize that, you know, as you put it, arts and culture is not second rate, not secondary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it should be the principal consideration when we look at what unites us as a country. I love that partnership because for so many people I've met, I think it's changing, but they think that Singapore should take care of them. And it's often, Singapore is sometimes talked about as a nanny state and a very heavy hand. And so the idea of partnerships and you know people actually partnering to do with the government, I think that's incredibly important. It is important because it also allows us to understand evolving needs. You know, the groups that we spoke about 10, 15 years ago, their needs and aspirations would be very different from now mm. as it would be different 10, 15 years from now. So I think we must be constantly engaged on the ground to understand, feel the pulse and get a good sense of what ticks, what works and what drives people. And these days it's changing every day. Every day, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes twice a day. Yeah. So is there a stereotypical myth about politicians that you'd like to debunk? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think of us? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say. Come on. <laughs> You're here with me. Well, I think in Singapore, at least I'd like to believe that we're not, not your quintessential politician. I think to us, it's a lot more about service. At least I like to believe that. And I think I see that in a lot of my colleagues as I speak to them. I mentioned that I'm the newest, amongst the newest in cabinet. I see them daily. I speak to them. It's really about service. It's less about trying to get re-elected, you know, which is perhaps the stereotypical politician to do whatever it takes to get re-elected. I think the value is that for us is many of us perhaps would be, I wouldn't say better off, but you know, if there's someone who comes forward and can serve my job and do my job better than I can, 
I'm very happy to step, step aside and I think that's better for the country and I happily go back to what I used to do. And I think that constant tension that needs to be there. I think we are not your typical politician in that sense, but rather we look a bit more long-term, we look at what will get us re-elected, but what's good for the country in the mid to long-term. And I think that's very important that we continue to have that ethos and that thinking. Pass the Power with Paige Parker. We'll be right back. Anytime you have politics, I feel, especially in the Western world, as soon as you're elected, you're worried about the next election. I think in Singapore, we are fortunate that that isn't the case and that we are giving a longevity in terms of policy making and, you know, the lens with which you look. I mean, look, you saw today that we are about to complete the first polder around, uh, was it Takong or one of the islands? You know, you probably don't need it, at least for a couple of decades. But the fact that we can commit today resources, funding and vision and policies to doing something that will keep Singapore safe for the foreseeable future in a couple of decades' time. Making expenses today on today's budget to deal with what is not going to be an issue that will help in any re-election in the coming years, I think is a sign of how this country looks long-term. And I think the day that we stop doing that, the day that we have to worry about the next election, I will worry about Singapore and Singaporeans. Do you worry about work-life balance? What balance? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any counsel for the young people listening? I mean, it sounds cliche, but you know, you often have to make some time for yourself and the family. I think you have to jealously guard it and consciously do so because, you know, speaking for myself, and I'm sure you know, young people today, sometimes their calendars is crazy. You know, I try and see my daughters, I've got to make an appointment with them that sometimes it's harder than to see the queen, you know. (laughs) So I think we have to consciously as a family come together and protect that space. So my wife is great at doing that. She organizes us and, you know, we have a way in which we spend time together doing banal things, you know. The next thing I wanted to ask you about is I know how limited your free time is and how you spend it. And I I guess it it is with family. (laughs) Yeah. You are second minister for law, correct? Yes. Yeah, as second minister for law. Recently in parliament, you outlined an update to Singapore's extradition statute. And my daughter in SEC2 is really involved with Model UN. And she came home talking about extradition one day. And I had read about this with you. And I thought, I could ask you. Part of the new proposal will offer fugitives a way to consent on extradition. And I need a little help on that. Why is that important? Well, we have come across occasions where the fugitive doesn't object to being sent back to his or her home country. But our previous laws required not withstanding the consent for there to be a formal process. So you've got to start a process going in. So it's a lot of resources for what is otherwise an uncontested position. So we decided that we will allow extradition by consent with certain safeguards to ensure that the consent is voluntary and informed. And if that's the case, then the whole process can be short-circuited and this person can actually start you know, the process in his or her home country sooner. I think it's in everyone's benefit. So the point is, is that they were already willing to do yes. it, but you were having to go through a certain process that's right, to yeah, get there. That's right. Okay. It doesn't apply to fugitives who don't consent. The whole raison d'etre behind it is there's consent. Right. I guess I just assume most fugitives wouldn't want to go back to what they ran from. Well, it depends. I mean, some people ran because of the occasion, the particular occasion as they were facing that pressure. But I think on reflection, they might decide that, you know, 
family is back home. They'd rather... Go home and face the music. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) not just that, but, you know, being on the run away from authorities, no, it's not the way to live the rest of your life. Thank you for indulging me on that one. Sure. These are questions that we ask all our guests, and the first is a question for me. How do you keep your pulse on the needs of society and community so well? Okay, I'm going to think on that while I ask you the next few questions. Ideal vacation? Have you had one? <laughs> uh, well, I, I will have one soon. On the beach. I think the best thing you can do is spend time with friends, family on the beach, doing nothing much. Well, tell us, will you really be able to unplug even when you're on the beach or not really? I think most times, yes, yeah, it's possible. Kids get annoyed with me occasionally when I'm sort of zoned out thinking about something else when they're trying to get me into the pool. But yeah, we manage. <laughs> and do you have a mindless online game? Do you do Wordle or Candy Crush? Is there I any do Wordle, kind of- I do uh, Snakes. Ah, okay. Is there a household chore you hate the most? Ironing. Ironing. I, can't I get love those, iron. I can't get those lines. It's impossible. <laughs> That's it's like, impossible. I, I like um, it. And coffee or tea? Coffee. I can't say the local way. I always try to say cope or cope or te. Kopi. Kopi or te. Kopi or te. I never <laughs> say it right, so now I say coffee or tea. Are your favorite hawker food in stall? Oh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, so many guests don't want to say the stall because they don't want to queue. <laughs> yeah, I don't queue, but mm. I'll tell you the stall. I think my favorite is the Chak Kui Teo at Hong Lim Food Center. And it's the, run by an old couple. It's called Utram. And uh, their queues are phenomenally long, but they're great. And would you rather have a pause or a rewind button on life? No. I think we have to live life for the moment. I think the moment we have the option of pausing or rewinding, you lose that spontaneity and you lose that occasion that maybe this is an opportunity that might go past us and never come back again. I think you need to have that. That's what life is about, to seize the moment. So no, I think we should just go on normal and not have this option. But I think with young people today, their world is so processed and overstimulated that not a real pause, but I do think they need to take time sometimes to think about Uh. Where they're going. If that's what you mean, yes, I agree. I agree entirely. I think, you know, the world moves at a fast pace today. Look at the way in which news is fed constantly. And not just all news, but it is the news that's curated for your particular echo chamber. So I think, yes, you're right. I mean, to take a break and to unplug for a while, to take stock and get gain a different perspective would be very useful. I teach a class for NASA Academy. And one of the things that I tell people is that when you go on a road trip, you have a map, right? Or you have a GPS and in life, if you don't like have a compass, if you don't have something kind of sort of guiding you and you don't know where you want to go, then how can you get to the next place? Yeah, right? that's right. But equally, that presupposes that you know where the next place is. You know, sometimes you just don't know. Sometimes you just have to say yes to yeah, life. You just have to take a punt sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I meant. You, know, you do have to make a judgment value, value judgment. And sometimes it's okay to regret the choice you've made you know because it means that you're invested you feel it if you're just aimlessly moving from one pillar to another post then it doesn't really help and back to your question you ask i keep a pulse i'm fortunate because i have young daughters and i actually joined social media as they were so that it was our platform together and a lot of parents don't see that as a positive but I think that we need to know what they're seeing. During the pandemic, I started doing one TikTok every day just so I could learn about TikTok and see the, I mean, some of the content is terrible, but if you are not there, you don't know. And sometimes I will like things I don't really like just so that the algorithm is skewed so I can see things outside of my 
paradigm. And I think as parents with our children, especially when they're young, is we kind of need to know the worlds that we're in. I have a friend and she doesn't want her son to game. I said, find out about gaming, find out about good games, find out about something that you can lead them to, as opposed to the ones where they're blowing up each other. I'm sure there has to be something positive out there. I've always been curious. I've always asked a lot of questions and I have a really diverse group of friends, you know, from fashion designers to people who are running companies. So I like a diverse group of people and I just try to keep my ears open and say yes to life. And when a crazy opportunity like doing the podcast or teaching a class online, you know, say yes, because if I fail, I'm going to learn something from that too. And I think that's one of the ways that you are able to really kind of get a good sense of what's going on is just I like your point about you know being on social media with your kids because that, I think that's important I mean gone are the days where you can tell people or you can censor them or you can tell them you know, you know shut down the site and so on uh, you can't do that mm-hmm. so I think you've got to embrace it you've got to learn together with them you've got to see what they see mm-hmm. and also try and understand what drives them so as a result of my own three daughters I'm um, very much plugged into the teenage girls music scene I know them all so, you know, in fact, some of them have grown on me as well. Like, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan now. Oh, wow. I think she writes fantastic music. My 14-year-old loves Taylor Swift. Oh, yeah. So do I. Tay-Tay is like... So I'm, she's, about, yeah. I'm about 14. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you for your time today and making the time to do this and to share your thoughts on the youth and the community and the culture and how we can all work together to make Singapore the most special and uh, successful little red dot. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for doing this because preparing for this, I've had the occasion to listen to some of your previous podcasts. And I think it's good that you catch people in a different environment, but sharing your own experiences, I think overall contributes to a wider knowledge and wider appreciation of the things that are being done in Singapore. And sometimes, which people take for granted, you know, I heard your session with Prof Tan Chua and I think, you know, he's a brilliant scientist. And, you know, hearing him in a different setting, you know, he's always so serious. Mm -hmm. Hearing him in a different setting with you, I think, really helps to open it up a bit and you know, have a different dynamic. Well, thank you for listening to past episodes. And listeners out there, you can go back and listen to those yes, episodes we can, yeah. as well. And I encourage you to do that. So. Yeah, but thank you for being here today. Thank you, Paige. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Please, please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This season, I'm hoping we can form an even better community. And I want to hear from you. Leave me a message on Instagram at I am Paige Parker and join my new LinkedIn community, Pass the Power with Paige Parker, for exclusive updates. This episode of Pass the Power with Paige Parker is produced by Gush Cloud International, my partner who helps bring to you these important conversations of hope. And yes, you know the drill. Come back next week for another episode as we pass the power on to you.